Morning Castleton Church family. It is a Another blessed day that the Lord allows us to gather together and be able to sit under his word together. Today will be the final installment in our series on biblical unity in diversity. I hope you've enjoyed coming along the ride toward this core value of ours. Our first three weeks looked at barriers or things that could get in the way of our uh, being united in our diversity. We, we considered our own conscience as well as the conscience of other believers. We, we also looked at knowing the difference between a fight that's worth having and one that's not worth having. This morning, we go to the flip side of the coin, not just the things that could tear down the unity of the church or split us. We look at the things that God is positively doing in our unity and diversity. Now, before we get to that, though, I want to invite you. I know there's a lot of questions related to this topic, and we have a Q&A tonight at 5 o'clock at the church. Uh, it'll be a prayer meeting, so we'll have a time to pray for the unity of our church as well as other matters. And there'll also be a chance to ask questions of a panel on this topic of unity and diversity. And if you want to send in your question ahead of time, go ahead and send us a text message is the number below. We'd love to be able to address whatever questions you might have related to this important topic. Well, as we begin, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we praise you this morning for your great faithfulness. We thank you for your wisdom that has done something that nobody saw coming and bringing together in one body in the body of Christ Jesus, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Father, would you help us to live up to the thing that you have intended the church to be, for us to have a compelling unity in the community of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then I'll fellowship with you. I wasn't able to find who originally wrote that poem, but uh, Pastor Kent Hughes gets the credit for putting it on my radar. It very well and eloquently puts a, a very real difficulty in the Christian life. We are drawn to people that are just like us. By default, our hearts grow close to people that are similar to us in various different ways. But there's only one problem. God has intentionally created a diverse community that is meant to have compelling unity in the church. Christians must realize God's intention for the church, lest, due to the natural inclinations of our hearts, we divide and divide and divide and end up with people that are just like us as our only friends and the only people in our fellowship. Now, we've spent a few weeks looking at those divisions that can be caused in the church, but I don't know about you, just hearing warnings all the time isn't enough to motivate me. Sometimes I need to know the positive thing I am working toward, which is what we'll turn our attention to this morning. We'll see that unity in, the, in diversity in the church actually shows God's wisdom to heaven and earth. 
That unity and diversity is God's idea to preach his wisdom to heaven and earth. And that means as we engage in being intentional in pursuit of unity and diversity, we are actually preaching of the wisdom of our God to a watching world. That's what we'll see this morning through four different aspects of unity and diversity. Four reasons that we should be pursuing it. The first is the intention of unity in diversity. The intention of unity in diversity. Second, the source of unity in diversity. The source of unity in diversity. Third, the breadth of unity in diversity. The breadth of unity in diversity. And then fourth, the challenge of unity in diversity. The challenge of unity in diversity. And all this we will see that unity in diversity is God's idea to show his wisdom to heaven and earth. Let's begin with the intention of unity in diversity. That brings us to uh, the passage this morning, Ephesians 3:10. Ephesians 3 verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 3.10, we are given a, a bit of a word picture from the Apostle Paul of a heavenly drama. God is the director. He has a very strange audience of unseen spiritual be beings, these rulers and authorities. And they're watching the most unusual of all actors, Christians in the church. The storyline of this drama is nothing more than the very wisdom of God on display. People are astonished as they watch the events unfold and come to the conclusion, no one has wisdom like this God. That's the picture being drawn, that the church is God's drama to show his wisdom in a way that otherwise wouldn't be known. Every time we, we walk into the church, we are players on this stage showing God's wisdom to heaven and earth. But how does that actually happen? And what sorts of aspects of God's wisdom are on display in this heavenly drama? Well, that's what we'll see in the next three categories. But first, before we need to understand that, we need to understand where this unity and diversity that God has brought together in the church comes from. We have to back up a little bit in the book of Ephesians. This is uh, the second point, the source of unity and diversity, the source of unity and diversity. If we back up a little bit in the book of Ephesians, we'll see how this drama comes about, and what God is trying to accomplish in it. One of the themes in the letter to the Ephesians is that two disparate groups, two groups that people never thought could go together, two groups that are like oil and water, are being brought together in the church. Those two groups are Jews and Gentiles. Look with me in Ephesians 2.12. Ephesians 2.12, describing the Gentiles, it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul describes the plight of the Gentiles. They're outside the covenant. 
God's very words made a distinction between his holy people Israel and all the other nations, the Gentiles. And God's words, along with the traditions were built up, made something that was like an impenetrable wall between these two groups. But something is going to tear down that wall. Ephesians 2, just a couple verses later, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What was the astonishing thing that God did to bring these groups together? Well, he, through the cross, tore down that wall and created a new community. At the cross, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament commands. The old covenant was fulfilled in the faithful Israelite Jesus. In addition to paying for our sins, he also ushered in a new covenant in his blood. A covenant that includes both Jews and Gentiles. Both grafted in, the Jews grafted into the family of God in this one new body called the church. We see in chapter 3, verse 6, that as a cross creates this community, it is the gospel that glues it together. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I love that phrase that Pastor Eric loves to use. The gospel is the glue that holds us together. You could say that comes straight out of the book of Ephesians. Paul looks at the way that God has, in a way that no one saw coming, brought Jews and Gentiles together in the church and says it's only possible by what Jesus did on the cross and by the good news of the gospel that we now preach. Brothers and sisters, realize that there is a unity a unity built in with diversity from the very beginning of the gospel message. Jews and Gentiles brought together in the church. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe you're here as a visitor or maybe you know that you're not a Christian, you're just checking out Christianity, uh, I hope you feel welcome in our church this morning or I hope you feel welcome however you found us online. But I wonder, have you considered have you considered the dividing line between those who believe and are part of the church and those who don't believe? We live in a day when people don't think much of religion. Yet according to the Bible, there's no more significant dividing line in humanity than those who have put their trust in Jesus and those who trust themselves to one day stand before God on their own merit. Maybe you don't think much about God, Maybe you think God must be right, fine with you because you haven't done anything intentionally to offend him. But the Bible tells us we are all his enemies by nature. That we are under his wrath because we have ignored the one that made us. Ask yourself the question, friend, how much have you thought about what God wants for your life as you've made decisions? 
The fact that we would make any decision without considering God's will for us is a mark that we are actually rebels against the king over us all, our creator God. The Bible tells us that rebellion is culpable, that we are guilty before him, and that the penalty for such rebellion is death, that we deserve nothing from him but eternal torment under his wrath in hell. All of humanity is in that boat. All of us were by default in that boat. By nature, that's where we all start. Yet, there is another way, another humanity that you can become a part of. Those who trust Jesus to save them from the wrath of God. Jesus gave his life on the cross as a substitute. He he paid the penalty for sin so that anyone who believes in him would, would not endure the wrath of God, but instead find full forgiveness and actually be welcomed into God's family. This is what we understand to be the church. It is people that have been saved by Jesus into a new humanity that will live with him forever. And friend, we want nothing more than for you to join that family. You can do that if you put your trust in Jesus to save you today. Now for all of us who are Christians, let's recognize that if Jesus by the cross, created our unity and diversity, if the gospel itself is the glue that holds together our unity and diversity, then it must be pretty important. And we should want to show it in our church and in every aspect of our lives that's possible. So how exactly does it show up? Jew and Gentile, that's easy enough to understand, but what about one one of the many other divisions that exist in life? Well, that's what we'll look at in our third point, the breadth of unity and diversity, the breadth of unity and diversity. What are some of the multifaceted ways that God shows his wisdom by gluing us together by the gospel in the church? We'll look at a few of them this morning. There's many more than we would have time to go through, but I'll highlight three of the most important ones. The first is societal status and class. Societal status and class. Back in the ancient world, much like today, people gravitate towards others that are the same as them along the lines of how much money you have, what type of family you belong to, uh, what type of job you have. That meant that it was very unusual for people of different social statuses to mingle together. And yet, very early on in the church, we see those divides being glued together by the gospel. Consider, for example, the divide between slave and master. The book of Philemon is a a wonderful example of this sort of unheard of unity in diversity. A slave master, upset that a slave had run away from him, again, very different than American slavery, but it was a form of slavery. And Paul writes a letter to the slave master appealing to him to think of his relationship with his slave, not in earthly terms, but in heavenly ones. He says, no longer consider him merely a bondservant or a slave, but as a brother. Because you are both Christians, think of each other more as brothers in Christ. 
than along the lines that society would tell you are most important. The, the gospel glues together even people of vastly different social classes. Uh, or, or what about the chasm between rich and poor? It's very easy for the human heart to engage in pride or envy. It can be very hard for people who have a lot to spend time with people who don't have a lot because there's just such a difference in the way life plays out. But we find in the church that rich and poor are brought together and instructions given specifically to keep the glue to hold to keep them together. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The logic is easy enough. I mean, if we are all spiritual beggars who have found a heavenly inheritance far richer than we deserve, how in the world should we show partiality over mere earthly riches? The gospel glues together rich and poor. And as along these social lines, the, the gospel glues these people together, it shows something of God's wisdom. Or what about the line of generations? The old and the young and everything in between? We so often gravitate towards people that are in that same age and stage as us for understanding reason, understandable reasons. And yet in the church, we see something so unexpected from the beginning. We see brought together, glued together by the gospel, people from all different ages. Uh, consider what was happening when Jesus was hanging on the cross one of his final acts on this earth was making sure his mother Mary was cared for. Do you remember? He looked to Mary, looked to the Apostle John. He said, this is your mother and this is your son. He brought together, glued together, two people in vastly different stages of life in the fellowship of the church. That was the first of many of these cross-generational relationships that would come to mark the Christian church. You can think of Paul and Timothy, a spiritual father to a spiritual son with such affection, even though there was no connection of blood. You can think of the admonitions given to the whole church for the older women to help mentor and disciple the younger women, for the younger men to hold in high esteem and to respect the older men within the church. The gospel glues together people across generational divides, and as it does so, it shows something of God's wisdom. Or what about the, ish, the divide of ethnic and cultural matters? Ethnicity. It's amazing how the gospel in Christianity crosses cultures in some senses so easily. I mean, if you think about it, it all started back in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Then the major center of Christianity over time became the West, Europe and uh, the United States in more recent years. And, and, but most recently, there's actually been another shift to what is called the, the global south. The, the major uh, growth of Christianity is in Africa and in South America. How is the Christianity able to spread like that? Well, it's because the gospel was from the beginning intended to cross cultural, tribal, and national boundaries and save people from all over the world into the body of Christ. This was God's idea from the very beginning. You can see it back even in the Old Testament. 
Uh, Isaiah 11:10 is one such example. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's a very useful exercise in your Bible study that as you read through and see something in the Old Testament referencing the nations being brought to know and worship God that you mark it. It turns out it is a subtle and yet noticeable theme throughout the Old Testament that God's plan has always been to receive worship from all the nations of the earth. Now, it wasn't clear how that was going to happen. But in the cross of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, what was subtle has been brought to the forefront and burst onto the scene. Jesus himself declares to his disciples their great commission, that they are to go forth and make disciples of all the nations. God's plan has always been for there to be ethnic national, tribal, cultural diversity in the church. And we can be assured it will assuredly happen. If we fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 6, you you see that multitude, that diverse community gathered around the throne from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping forever around the throne of God. You see, brothers and sisters, Diversity in humanity is meant to show the glory of God, to show his wisdom to heaven and earth. We will spend all of eternity worshiping with people, people from all different sorts of backgrounds, from all different parts of the world, with all different sorts of cultures and families. And in our diversity, we will show something of God's wisdom and how he brought together people that otherwise would not fit together. We need to acknowledge, though, that this is not an easy thing to do. That even as the gospel glues us together, sometimes the fault lines, the the joints of that glue, can trip us up if we're not careful. That's what brings us to the fourth point, the challenge of unity in diversity. The challenge of unity in diversity. It turns out that crossing cultures, crossing demographics, being in close fellowship with people other than ourselves is a challenging thing. And that means we need to be very careful and considerate about our fellowship and the points of friction. Acts 6.1 shows us an example of this. There was a a fellowship that had a much friction that was threatening to spark an explosion that would split the church apart. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is early on when the church was growing rapidly in Jerusalem, and there was an issue. It turned out that there was unequal aid being given to the widows. Some widows were having their fill and others were leaving empty-handed in the weekly uh, aid that was provided. Now, the matter was even more fraught. The friction was even more noticeable because it broke along ethnic lines. There were the Jewish widows. They were the ones that were good. They were getting their fill. But then there were the Hellenists. That is the Greek-speaking widows. 
the, the women that were from a different location, that spoke a different language, that probably had different looks to them. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that it was intentional, and so I think it's right to assume this was unintentional. But the result was still the same. They were being neglected, and people were starting to feel the friction in the fellowship. Now, the disciples, thankfully, have wisdom from God and the right priorities. And so they look at the situation, and instead of silencing it, they look for a solution, and one that is incredibly elegant. They set apart a team of seven men, to go and wait on the table. Seven godly men that will do this fairly, that people will trust. That keeps the disciples from having to neglect the word of God in prayer. And it also, and the way they do it, it heads off the issue at the pass. As you pay attention closely to the passage, if you go through that list of seven men, you'll see that each of their names is actually a Greek name. Now, that's very, very astute, very shrewd by the disciples to to do that. It means that the very point of friction is addressed in the solution they come up with. They're they're giving extra reason for the Hellenist widows to trust that they will not be unfairly treated by picking men that at the very least understand the Greek culture. This is an example of in the church, brothers and sisters bending over, Doing, uh, bending over backward, doing all they can in order to make sure there's no stumbling block to their fellowship, to address the point of friction inside the church. And the result of all this, the gospel glue holds. The church stays together and the compelling unity in the diversity of the church is attractive and their number grows and grows and grows. The word of God is preached in greater and greater way. See, there is a great challenge that we must realize that cuts across all different of these lines of diversity within the church. It is possible for us to trip over these lines of division, for us to allow friction to set in in our fellowship by not considering carefully or even ignoring the presence of these lines. That means as a church, we have a challenge before us. The challenge to to realize that this is something that God wants and to do what we can to cultivate the sort of unity and diversity that God intends to show his wisdom. Let me put before you at least two ways that we can do this. First is along the lines of the challenge of comfort. Realize again that we all are naturally drawn, drawn to people like us. It's just easier to have conversation when you have the same hobbies, you're from the same town, you you look like each other. It's it's just, you're more at ease with each other. And yet if we're not intentional of cultivating cross-pollination within a church, very easily we end up siloing off into little corners and missing out on the richness of the unity and diversity God's brought inside. I think of how so often in churches we create these little age and stage ministries to kind of section Christians off from each other. You, know, you have a children's ministry and then a teens ministry and then a young adult ministry and then a, a family's ministry and then an empty nester ministry and then a retiree ministry. Now, now, there's some value to that. We as a church have some of those types of ministries because it's more effective to disciple in some cases with a more focused, uh, contextualized approach. Uh, 
And yet all of those types of ministries come with an inherent danger. If we make them the focal point of our fellowship, over time, we will section ourselves off from the breadth of the unity and diversity in the body. That means we need to be intentional about cultivating cross-pollination across these different demographics and lines that could divide us if we are to see the unity and diversity that God intends. I I love it when I see brothers and sisters from completely different age categories talking with each other on Sunday morning after church. I love hearing stories about small groups where you have people from grew up in completely different parts of the world, and yet they're enjoying fellowship together. They're, they're close together in fellowship. I love it when I see students involved serving in the church on Sunday morning. I love it when I see brothers and sisters that take the time to learn the names of children in our church. All these things are examples of cross-pollinating within our church. And we as a church leadership, we think long and hard about how individual ministries will either encourage or discourage that sort of intentional mixing. But let me make it personal for each of us. If we think this is something that God has built into the church, is something he wants to be there, consider it a goal of yours on Sunday morning to use the people you talk to as an intentional point of cross-pollinating. So ask yourself, maybe just challenge yourself. Find one person to talk to on Sunday morning that you otherwise wouldn't, except for the fact that you're both Christians. Find one person that maybe different age than you, different stage than you, from a different part of the world than you are. Maybe someone that likes things that are different than you. You're not sure what you're going to talk about. Maybe it gets a little awkward, but make an effort. Go talk to them, learn their name, learn something about them, and see if God doesn't build a friendship along lines that the world won't be able to make sense of. Because what happens when we do this well? The world sees people together that otherwise make no sense to be together, and they say, there must be something amazing about their God that he can bring together people so different from each other. I recognize that's uncomfortable, but it's worth doing so that heaven and earth can see the wisdom of our God on display. The challenge of comfort is a big one. There's also another challenge. I think specifically we need to think about the challenge of culture. Crossing cultures is really hard. Have you ever talked with a missionary that's taken the time to go to a country very different than ours and learn the culture and the language, they'll tell you it's an exhausting experience. One of the things I loved about being in Wheaton, Illinois for the six years we were there was seeing so many uh, students come back from these missionary families and re, uh, reintegrate into the culture of the United States. Uh, for them, they had grown used to the culture of the country they were in And they found being in the Midwest a bewildering and difficult experience sometimes. I remember one particular kid, he would show up, and he really just had trouble wearing shoes. Everyone else was wearing shoes, but the country he was in, kids really didn't wear shoes much. And it felt really strange to him that he was needed to wear shoes in nice carpeted places like inside of a church. And so there he would be in the middle of youth group with his toes hanging out, And there were more than a few giggles about it, but uh, 
It, it was just a cultural difference. And uh, I, I talked frankly with him. He, when I asked him what it was like for him to be home, he, he looked a little confused. And then he said, I, I kind of think of the country that I came back from as home. This feels strange to me. Realize how difficult it can be for someone that is crossing a culture to be a part of our fellowship. There, there are lots of points of friction that very often are not visible to us. Now, we can't avoid having a culture. I mean, we, we're in a place where the Lord placed us. We grew up in the families we did. Uh, every church will, by definition, have a culture of some sort. So I'm not saying we try to pretend that we could be cultureless. But what I am advocating is that we could be, at least be aware of our culture and be gracious about it. That if someone were to find something we do strange, we wouldn't be defensive about it. That if there was a preference of the way we did a certain thing, but if it might actually be useful to another believer or set of believers that we bend on that thing, that we would be willing to do so. That we would see it as worthwhile to at least consider how other believers might experience uh, fellowship on a given Sunday and ask, how can we show the wisdom of God in the way we love each other in the church? Now, if you're with us at Castleton Community Church and you've been crossing a culture to do so, maybe you're from another country or, or maybe you're just from a part of the country that's different than Indianapolis and the particular corner of Indianapolis we're in, uh, let me just say uh, thank you for the effort you put into being a, a part of our fellowship and being uh, even stretching so that you can participate in our unity and diversity in our local church. Uh, we, our body is better for your presence here, and, and I hope you'll feel the freedom to graciously let us know where there are points of friction so that we can better love you and come around alongside of you so that there would be true unity in our body. Now, one of the areas along the lines of culture and ethnicity that is an extreme flashpoint at the moment is undoubtedly the issue of race. Racial harmony in America, the issues of racism and racial justice between blacks and whites is, it's something that is extremely acute for many. We have a, a horrible history in our country and even in gospel preaching churches to our shame there's a horrible history of, of racism. For that fact, we, I think, should have great sobriety around the cultural conversation that is happening, realizing that it's a very difficult thing for God to glue together people that the world is showing us should be divided apart from each other. Now, I know there are many ways that we might disagree about how Christians should engage in the topic. But I think we can all be on the same page on a few things. I think we can all hope and pray and work toward that there would be no partiality, no animus, no hatred in any of our hearts. And that we, as far as it's able on us, would, would never do anything to keep another brother or sister that Christ has brought from being able to join our fellowship. I think we should all also be committed to prayer. Prayer to discern how we should act when we disagree on some of these very charged matters. And I think we should also pray that as much as our community, the people around our church are diverse, that the Lord would uh, allow us to reflect that community in our church body. That it wouldn't be because of any stumbling block on our part 
or from any willingness to address sin that someone has kept from fellowshipping with us. I long for our church to be the sort of church where the, the world looks at us and says, how are those people loving each other? How is that diverse community in such unity? The only explanation must be, their God must be amazing. Brothers and sisters, it is hard work to try and cultivate unity and diversity. But it is God's intention for the church. And we benefit so greatly when we even give up our comfort and, and stretch and do things that we naturally wouldn't in order to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope this series has been an encouragement to you. I, I am greatly encouraged by your hospitality and the love you have shown to newcomers. I, I pray that never wears off, that no matter what the lines seem to be between us, that we would find the gospel glue holding us together and that we'd be preaching to heaven and earth of the wisdom of our God. I want to end our series with the thing that Jesus prayed would be true of us as the church. John chapter 17, verse 21, he said this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord grant us unity in our diversity and may the watching world in heaven and earth, may it notice the greatness of our God. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your cross that has broken wall, down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And thank you for your gospel that has glued together people so different as us. Would you give us a joy in the way you have brought us together in the beautiful diversity of the church? Would you give us love for each other and a willingness to bear each other's burdens? Would you give us the conviction to never be a source of stumbling for another believer, if we can help it? And Lord Jesus, would you give us discernment when we disagree? to know what are the fights worth having and what are the things we should cover in love. Oh Jesus, make us into the sort of church that the world can't make sense of except that you are a great God. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.